3: You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com.
1: You know what cheers me up? Rolled-up aces over king.
2: Ladies and gentlemen,
3: boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author and professional poker player, Ashley Adams.
2: Okay, you have some skill.
0: Hello, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. We've got a great show. Um, We've got, first of all, a renaissance man in in the world of gambling and poker. His name is Avery Cardoza. You may know Cardoza Publishing. It's the largest publisher of gambling books in the world. He's also the owner for the last year and a half or so of a great, maybe the best gambler's book club. It is the gambler's book club the best bookstore for people that play poker or do any any kind of gambling. It's in Las Vegas. I love going there. And now he's a novelist. He's written a novel that I just finished reading, and I really enjoyed it. I literally couldn't put it down for more hours into the night than I care to remember. It's called Lost in Las Vegas. He'll talk about it. I'll talk about it more when we, when we have him on in just a few minutes. And then his interview is going to be followed by a replay done to honor the memory, really, of... One of the nicest guys in the poker world, a great poker player and poker teacher named Barry Tannenbaum. We interviewed him a couple of years ago. We're going to replay that interview, and then we'll have a mailbag segment. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Avery Cardoza. Big deal at Seneca Gaming and Entertainment. Live action poker. Endless chances to win. Guaranteed prize pool. Tournaments. Daily events. A bad beat jackpot. Omaha stud and everyone's favorite Texas hold'em. And thousands of dollars in guaranteed tournament action. Now that's a big deal. Exciting Vegas style poker. Just off Exit 20 on I-86 in Salamanca, New York. Across from McDonald's. Online at SenecaPoker.com. Seneca Gaming and Entertainment. Your new destination for a better game. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. Dot com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash hocradio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they're particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at house of and, and www.Twitter.com slash hoc radio. Info at house of radio.com and www.Twitter.com dot com slash HOC radio.
3: You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at House of com. You're listening to the House of Cards. Join us online at House of com. Quiet young man, can't you see we're having a poker game?
0: Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. And just as we promised, we have somebody whom I consider to be really a renaissance man in the gambling world. It's Avery Cardoza. You may know him from some of the hats he's worn. He is the owner of, I think, the largest publishing house of gambling-related books in the world, Cardoza Publishing. He himself is the author of 21 books on gambling. He's a poker player who has cashed in World Series of Poker events. At least I think he's cashed in them. And now he is the author of a novel, a great novel, a novel that I could not put down. Literally, you hear that a lot is hype, but I couldn't put it down. I was up almost all night. I read it while I was walking today, a book called Lost in Las Vegas. And I'm not going to keep talking. I want to talk to him. So he's here. Avery, are you on the line?
2: Yes, Ashley. Thank you very much for having me on the show.
0: Okay, great. I I didn't mention that you're also the owner, relatively recently, of one of my favorite places to go in Las Vegas, Avery, the Gambler's Book Club that I guess you bought, what, two years ago?
2: I think uh, it's about maybe a year and a half, two years ago, something like that. It's coming on two years, that's for sure. Uh, I love going uh, there. It's been around since 1964. It's an institution in the gambling world and in Las Vegas. And it was in hard times, and it didn't look like it had much more to go. And I felt as was an obligation being a longtime friend of all the people that, that's owned the stores through the years and have worked there. And I felt was an obligation to save the store, Well which I did.
0: You did in a time when the gambling publishing world is not exactly robust, at least what I can tell. Sales have been down since the Internet boom collapsed. But the store is great. I love stopping in. But I, I want to talk. Mainly about this novel because I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I would describe it, I, I know that you have, other people have uh, written uh, reviews of it, but I'd describe it as a roller coaster ride. It plunges to the lowest of the down and out, depressing, and uh, kind of of Las Vegas, the really awful, uh, stark uh, world that the lowest of the low inhabit in Las Vegas, but it also has real manic intensity. I mean, these wildly drawn characters, gamblers, killers, losers, uh, whores, and the like. And uh, I'm wondering how you came up with this story. I know it's been in the works for nine or ten years. How did you come to write a novel?
2: It's sort of, uh, and I'll give you the short version, because the long version is about ten hours, but the short version... <laughs> is this was coming out of a very dark period of my life, and I had started writing. One day I had started writing uh, the stream of consciousness type thing, and I wrote about that for four days, stuff most people wouldn't appreciate. And then one day a scene came to my head and I wrote it, and then another day I wrote another scene, and over a period of five days I, I was writing scenes. And on the fifth day I realized that I was going to complete this work because I never go five days on a project that's creative, You know, and the fifth day means it's real because the first day is inspiration, the second day is inspiration, the third day is half inspiration, the fourth day is a little inspiration, the fifth day is just hard work.
0: Perspiration. At
2: that point, I didn't plan out this novel, Uh, it just came, it just came to me and, and took on its own life in a funny way.
0: Well, there are so many weird but powerfully drawn characters. I'm wondering... How you came up with them? Are they based on any people you knew? Is it all out of your imagination? Where are they from? The funny
2: thing is, outside of maybe one or two characters, actually maybe just one character, uh, all the characters are purely out of my imagination. They weren't based on people I've met. Normally what a writer will do, and certainly I, I would fit in with that normally, is you take a character that you've met somewhere and you either use that character or you exaggerate them or you take a piece of them and corrupted entirely, and and you work with that. All the characters in this book weren't that at all. They just came out of me uh, somewhere out of my imagination. They're just not based on anyone at all. <laughs> I'm not even in the book in, in any way, so you can hear my voice, but none of the characters are any reflection of me either in, in a real way, in a corrupted way, or in an imaginative way.
0: Well, I have to disagree okay. with you there, because I know there's a scene at a blackjack table where there's a character named... Cardozi or something, who just is a cameo role, who gives uh, uh, one of the the very down and out guys like fifty dollars to keep playing blackjack. And his name, it, it, they're kidding around. Isn't that the guy from the book? They're saying to each other, "Wasn't that oh, you?"
2: Yeah. yeah, yes, that yes, that was a small. Yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, yes, the cameo, cameo role. Right.
0: <laughs> the guy so with they the. They
2: have a making fun of my name, Cardozzi, Cardozi Right,
0: right, 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 right. And then there were two other cameo appearances. I mean, I know in the front it says any depiction of ca- people purely fictional, but you do have a brief appearance by Mike Tyson, and a brief appearance by Doyle Brunson, right?
2: Yes, yes, I had those two cameos as well.
0: Well, that and that's nice. You know, I love books that are actually based on real places. Even though a number of the casinos you create are fictional, you do have some very nice touchstones in the Las Vegas universe, including. Uh, the Golden Gate, uh, the shrimp cocktail, 99-cent thing, that's in there. And you got a couple of other things, the fountains, of course, the Bellagio. I, I like that, the way you put those little things in so people that know Las Vegas can recognize parts of it, even though a lot of it's fictional.
2: Yeah, what I did was also a lot of I, – I, I didn't make more places real. I based them on real places, but a lot of the book is sort of looks at the down-and-out aspect of, you know, these two guys get into a lot of trouble – and they they eventually become homeless and they do anything just to survive, as well as they're being hunted by the mob, the FBI, a group of killers are after them, a psychopath, all sorts of people are after them. And I didn't want real casinos to take exception to having, you know, and there's, there's a bunch of scenes which show compulsive gambling and also real, you know, regular, you know, gambling type scenes. And I felt that casinos might not appreciate having their name associated with some of these scenes. So, and, you know, originally I, I had started writing this 10 years ago. And at that time I had a, uh, somewhere during that po- po- time I had a national magazine, uh, a lifestyle magazine called uh, Player Magazine. And t- since I was taking advertising from these people, it wasn't a good idea to sort of disparage <laughs> them. That, that was my goal, Yes,
0: I'd say not. <laughs> I'd say not. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about the book. And I also want to talk about, your connection to the gambling world, how you really sure. learned about all this stuff. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Avery Cardoza. Deal at Seneca Gaming and Entertainment. Live action poker. Endless chances to win. Guaranteed prize pool. Tournaments. Daily events. A bed beat jackpot. Omaha stud and everyone's favorite Texas hold them. Thousands of dollars in guaranteed tournament action. Now
1: that's a big deal.
0: Exciting Vegas style poker. Just off
1: exit 20 on I-86 in Salamanca, New York, across from
3: McDonald's.
0: Online at SenecaPoker.com.
3: Seneca Gaming and Entertainment. Your
0: new destination for a better game
3: great moments in history. In 1591, Sir Walter Raleigh was imprisoned in the Tower of London for insulting Queen Elizabeth I.
1: I too can command the wind, sir! I have a hurricane in me that will strip Spain bare if you dare to try me! Well,
3: I'd love to stay in chat, but you're a total bitch. In June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseofCardsRadio.com and click on the Podcast button for all recent show downloads. of cards
2: you gotta gamble to win boys and girls with ashley adams is that the king
0: welcome back listeners this is house of cards i'm ashley adams and we're continuing our interview with the uh, guy i describe as a renaissance man in the gambling world his name is avery cardoza he owns a a very important gambling bookstore called the Gambler's Book Club. He is the owner of Cardoza Publishing, and he is the author of a great novel set in Las Vegas. Uh, and I, I want our listeners to appreciate, Avery, if you don't mind, um, I want to read some of this book because it it goes, you know, it's funny at times, it's manic at times, but it's it's really well written for people who want to get a sense of what the lowest of the low level of a gambler can be. And I just want to read a paragraph that's on page 316 that really struck me as capturing a lot of this world that uh, too often, those of us who love poker, we forget that there's this underworld of gambling that really is depressing. It. He writes, for gamblers, while the chips and coins are in play... The drudgeries of everyday life go away. It's about the gamble, a trigger of an atavistic urge that kickstarts the adrenaline juices when the bones are thrown, the cards are dealt, or the wheels of life's fantasy is spun. Action is the operative word. Action. Players pay the admission price, enter into the house of fun, and take their chances. And when they're done, they go back to where they're from, hungover perhaps, poorer for the excursion perhaps, or richer, with more acorns gathered into their pile but satiated Maybe oversatiated, filled, gorged, flagellated, and self flagellated. But then he goes on to describe what it's like, not for the out of town gamblers who come in and go back to their nicely feathered pillows, but for locals. And he writes For locals making this a ritual, it is dead end alley. Stop and don't pass go. A game that ends when their paper money runs dry. The casino has all the greenhouses and red hotels, and their wallet is nothing but leather on leather or more precisely, a dried-out rubber band with no elasticity, though there is nothing left for it to hold anyway. They sleep with that harsh reality and wake up to it, too, the new day bringing only more hours with the same nothing. Man, that's good writing. How is it you came came to this, Avery? I mean, you were writing gambling books, uh... How did you come to the gambling world? Were you always a gambler? Were you always in this world? Or is this something you discovered after doing something else?
2: Well, you know, before I was an adult, I started gambling before as an adult in casinos you know, of legal age. But I've always wanted to write a novel, and it just was never the right time. It never came to me. I made some attempts earlier where I loved the story, but the writing was terrible, and I knew it. And this book came of its own volition. But uh, I started out as a professional blackjack player uh, around 19, I think it was, 19 years old. And after a while, I found the casinos wouldn't deal cards to me, and my picture was circulated, and I wasn't allowed to play in any casino in Nevada. At that point, I said, "All right, let me write a book." I felt that there was need of, uh, of a of a very well written book that explained to people why you make the plays you do in blackjack and no book had done that, they'd show the plays but no one understood why they were making the plays and therefore they'd they'd make a play that was correct mathematically but it wouldn't work out and they'd go back to just their their thinking of what their best play was which is not the way to play it. So I explained all this stuff and my goal with that book was to hopefully sell a few books and travel the world with the profits and uh, I wrote the book, it did well and I decided to publish it myself knowing nothing about it. I just did it, did enough things right, and I traveled the world for seven years, pretty much.
0: Where did you
3: go?
2: I, I lived in South America. I lived in Brazil for a while. I lived in uh, Jerusalem for a while. I lived in Tokyo. I traveled all over Asia, South America. I did a little bit of Europe, I guess. I, I, like, I like places where they don't speak English, where it's, where it's uh, just a different world.
0: Did you gamble where you went or did you just, did you have a job? What did you do in all no, these places?
2: I, no, I just, I just, I just wandered the world. For seven
0: world. years, you wandered the world?
2: For the moment, for the better part of seven years, not not consistently, but for the better part, yeah.
0: So then I, what I, happened?
2: You know, I stayed in all sorts of, you know, places that most people would not go near, but I made a different life over there. Huh. How interesting. Not on the feathered pillows.
0: No, well, what happened then?
2: Well, at some point uh, I got tired of running around the world and I came back and because uh, when I wrote my first book and then I wrote a second book and I believe I did the traveling, I'd come back every once in a while, to do some more books, but I never did this to do a business. I just, I never thought that far ahead. And then when I got back and got more settled in, I started building the business, again, not for the intention of building the business, but just to put out more good works on gambling. And then over the years we grew to be the largest gambling publisher in the world and the go-to place for anyone that had a serious book that was good and needed to reach a wider audience. And, and I offered, you know, the distribution. and I, I offered my hand as an editor and someone that could see what was written and, and bring out the best form of it. And so, so the readers of Cardoza Books would just get very quality works that, that they could stand behind.
0: How long has Cardoza been around as a publishing company?
2: Three decades already. Wow.
0: See, I remember in 1992, they opened Foxwoods Casino. And I went out and I said, you know, I used to play in high school and college. I said, geez, you know, I want to get a book that can really show me the proper strategy rather than just relying on my gut. And I bought a book, a Cardoza book by Ed Silberstein called Winning uh, Poker for the Serious Player. And uh, I remember I read it. I must have read it. 20 times and took notes on it and took it to the casino with me and and learned how to win. And then I found all these little mistakes, you know, tiny grammar mistakes or typos, right. and I sent them to Cardoza Publishing, and I didn't know who you were. Of course, you didn't know who I was. I was nobody. Right. But you sent me back a nice note with a catalog, and I then ordered my first five books of my poker collection. That was back in 1993. And I've been... Uh, an admirer of that publishing company ever since. What do you have planned next, Avery? I mean, you you own the book club, you own the publishing company. You're a novelist. Are you looking to do more novels, or or not do anyone ever again?
2: Well, actually, if I have to go through what I went through writing this book, I don't want to write another book. It was uh, just, I mean, it's hard to imagine what a difficult process this was. It was. I worked on it every day for many, many hours. I'd work sometimes. 40 hours through a weekend without straight, without sleeping, maybe three bathroom breaks or wouldn't eat. And I just work on it straight. I did this for years, and it was just a horrible, every second of it was just a horrible, the worst experience of my life easily. Really? So, yes, it was just, you know, for some reason it just I mean, This book is an odd book in that I didn't plan this book. And even 150 pages into this book, I still had no stories, just random scenes, but I was driven to write this book. And you know, begs the question: Why would I do something for ten years that I hated? It was a horrible, <laughs> horrible experience. Why would I do that? And I, I really don't know the answer. You're a masochist. It's just something that had come
0: out of me. Self abuse. Maybe you're a masochist.
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there's a large element of that in there.
0: <laughs> well, are you? Uh, are, I know I saw your name a couple of times in uh, poker tournaments in Las Vegas. Do you p- gamble still? Do you still play blackjack in places that haven't banned you? But, what do you do in the gambling no, world?
2: I, I, the, only, the only game I play now is poker, and I only played it infrequently during the World Series because during the year I'm working so hard on so many projects that I just don't have time. Uh, last year I, I played, I think, seven events, and I, I played, I, I finished 10th in a deuce to seven. Ooh. And I, I, I played really well, and I, I would have liked to have done better, but that's, that's all I could have done given those circumstances. And I didn't play shorthanded this year where I've been very good a couple of years ago when I was playing a little more. I played three shorthanded events, and in all three of them, I was the chip leader at one point or another. Wow. Once I came in 19th, and the other once I cashed, and the third one, I just missed caching. Right. I, play, I played really, really well there, but I just wasn't up for it this year for whatever reason.
0: Well, we got about a, a new, we got about 30 seconds left. Is there any chance this book's going to be a movie?
2: Uh, it's been optioned for a movie by Kevin Pollock. He's very excited about it. He's showing it around Hollywood. He thinks that no matter what, this should be a movie. And If the big studios don't take it, he said that he wants to make this into a movie. He's just very excited about uh, it. That would be great. So hopefully that happens.
0: Avery, I, again, I love going to the Gamblers Book Club. I love visiting with you, and uh, I hope to see you before too long. Thank you for coming on as a guest.
2: Oh, it was a real pleasure, Ashley. Thank Listeners, you Listeners,
0: Lost in Las Vegas, Avery Cardoza. Look for it and uh, read it. It's a great book. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rachel. All right, listeners, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back.
3: Hey, Jersey, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at info at HouseOfCardsRadio.com or leave a message at our hotline at 609-474-4627. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-Card Stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-Card Stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players. The art of bluffing. You'll learn to master them all. Winning seven-card stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com.
0: Hey, how ya doing? This is Joe Walsh. I'm speaking on behalf of Rad. It's okay to rock and roll, right? But don't drive home drunk. But if you're drunk, call me up. I have a limo.
2: I'll come and get you. Public service
1: announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council.
3: Hey, this is Dave Weishaupt from House of Cards with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of January 30th, 2012. Buffalo, New York, is now getting a permanent structure for their downtown casino. Seneca Gaming Corp. selected a Memphis-based architecture and interior design firm to design plans for the permanent structure of the Seneca Buffalo Creek Casino. The casino opened in July of 2007 as a temporary facility, and Seneca gaming officials have said they want the permanent casino to fit in with some of its immediate neighbors, including the First Niagara Center. In South Dakota, a judge sentenced a man who robbed the Crown 2 Casino to six years in prison. Corey Allen Stilo pleaded guilty to second-degree robbery when he forced the clerk at the casino to hand over cash last summer. And how much did the unarmed Stilo get away with? A grand total of four hundred and five dollars. The police found him the next day with only about ninety bucks left on him. And finally, it's official. <laughs> Hey, sound effects. Pennsylvania is now the number two gaming market in the U.S. behind Nevada. Pennsylvania took in over $3 billion last year, knocking Atlantic City out of the number two spot in the U.S. gaming market. (laughs) You know, if Pennsylvania finds a way to get boardwalks and beaches to their casinos, Atlantic City is in real trouble. Have any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation? Send us an email at newsroom at houseofcardsradio.com and follow House of Cards on Twitter at HOCRadio. Don't just listen to House of Cards. Now you can be part of the show with the House of Cards Hotline. Comments about the show? Poker questions? You just want us to know about great places to play? Or you just got bluffed out of a pot? Your messages may even be played on the air. Give us a call at 609-474-HOCR. That's 609-474-4627. The House of Cards Hotline. Available 24 hours a day. By leaving a message with House of Cards, you consent to having your message played on the air. You're listening to the House of Cards. Whoa! I think we got a show. Oh, yeah, we got a show. We definitely got a show. Oh, yeah, there's a
2: show. Hey, it's all about ratings, baby, and we got them. (laughs)
0: Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to House of Cards. This is Ashley Adams, and you are really, you are really lucky this evening because we have a great guest. Uh, this is Barry Tannenbaum, who's on the line. Barry is a rare breed, actually, because uh, there are a lot of imposters. This is the real thing. This is a true full-time professional poker player. Makes his living. Monday through Friday or Wednesday through Sunday as a full-time 30 60 poker player and also has found time over the last many years to write many, many articles, 130 at last count of articles for Card Player magazine, as well as two books. Barry, are you there?
1: I am here, Ashley. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, we're really lucky to have you, Barry. I know this is a World Series of Poker season. You're probably never busier than you are now. Can you um, start us off by just filling our listeners in, even those who may know you from your strategy article, on how you entered the poker world and ended up where you are today and exactly where you are today?
1: I'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay, um, take I, your time. <laughs> I, played a, I played a little poker in college, which I was really bad at. I had no clue. Stopped playing after that because I was a full-time computer design engineer. Sometime during an early hiatus in my second marriage, I was living in San Jose, California, and I discovered that between work and home was a legal poker room. Not having that much to do in the evenings anymore, I stopped off and started to play Hold'em, which I thought was the stupidest game I had ever seen (laughs) uh, because you only get two cards, and what can you do with two cards? But I started playing it and I began to realize that um, there was something to it. I tried to find some books, I couldn't. Um, Eventually, I got lucky and I found um, uh, Hold'em for Advanced Players. Which, this is a cute, little quick story. Yes. They told me, you go to the cage at Garden City and buy a book. And I went to the cage, and they said, we have advanced books and we have basic book. And I said, well, I've been playing for years. Give me the advanced book. So they gave me the, the, the advanced book. I took it home. I read it. I didn't understand a word, practically. Two days later, I went back and said, can I have the beginner book now? And they gave me uh, Slansky's Hold'em. And from that, I was able to begin to understand the game a lot better. Uh, certainly better than my opponents, and I started moving up from three six to six twelve. Six twelve to ten twenty was the hardest transition I ever made. I had to do that like five times, go to ten twenty, bounce back to six twelve, um, eventually, I made it, was able to beat the 1020, and started playing the 2040, and keeping very good records, which I always recommend. I discovered that I was making more money playing twenty four than I than I was managing engineers. So I began looking for an exit strategy, and finally found one. And in 2000, I moved to Las Vegas and became a full time 3060 pro. So you started. Really, as a part timer, worked your way
0: up the ladder from 3 six to 612 and then to 1020 and then to 2040. When did you what was it that made you realize that i 'm going to do this now for a living? Was it just the numbers, or did you actually have a comfort level in addition to the numbers in your books telling you you were a winning player for a certain amount of time? Was there a comfort level that you achieved, or was it strictly by the book?
1: It wasn't only a comfort level, I absolutely loved the game. And to, my, to me, A, you know, I was able to follow my dream, I was able to finally do something for a living that I really, really liked. But the second thing is, I don't think you can really be a great, successful poker professional unless you truly have a passion for the game. And actually, there has never been a game where I, where I got in my car and said, rats, I have to go to a casino today and play poker.
0: What is it that you find so exciting? I mean, I just today somebody asked me, they said, don't you ever get bored playing poker? And I said, absolutely not. And they were astonished that I wouldn't get bored. Tell tell our listeners, I mean, what is it about the game that really keeps you captivated after all these years?
1: The game is an infinite series of a variety of situations where every time you take a player out of the game and put a new player in the game, every time a player has an event, a bad beat, a success, uh, a cocktail, the game changes. Right. And the you know if you just sit there and you say well I'm going to play a rote game I'm going to look for these hands in this position and these hands in that position and these flops and yeah the game can get truly dull but you're also not playing the game right uh, to play the game you have to you have to play the people and play the situations and play your opponents and try to get into their heads on a constant basis and that is such an amazingly daily challenge you can't get tired of it
0: well and to this, then. I have you know a lot of listeners that I meet and talk to, or they send me emails, and they're thinking right away they want to go pro. They want to quit their job, move to Las Vegas, or go down to Foxwoods. I live out in Boston on the East Coast. What would you say, now you've been doing this for a while, and you've also been in a mix where you've gotten to know people who have done this as, as well. How does somebody know, either how much time does it take or what kind of records do they need to prove that they are truly ready to either work part-time as a a poker player, or especially how they know it's time to quit their day job and do this full-time?
1: You know, I get a lot of those emails, too, actually, because (laughs) I I coach a lot of people. I'm out there with my strategy columns. So, you know, and so I do get a lot of this. I'm very conservative about it. And that's probably not so good these days because... You know, every day I get a press release in the World Series saying so and so, a twenty two year old pro dropped out of college and just want to go bracelet. <laughs>
0: right, you know, that's con- right.
1: You know, congratulations, let's see if he you know where he is in five years. Um, and some of them are gonna make it and a lot of them are not. Uh, because the hardest part about being a, a full time poker professional is staying sane during the downswings. Uh, and not losing your game and not losing your ability and not losing your family and so on when you're going to the casino or the card room and losing every day. Uh, It really takes, to me, to my way of thinking, a couple of years of records that say that you can – Beat the game that you want to do for a living. It doesn't do any good to beat a three six game for eight dollars an hour, and then announce you're going to turn pro and play twenty forty. Right. Uh, you have to re- you have to decide how much money you want to make a year. You have to decide if the game you want to play can sustain that because there's so many unrealistic dreams out there. You know, I'm going to make a thousand dollars a week, and you say, Well, how are you going to make a thousand dollars a week? Well, that's what I need to live, so I'm going to make it. Uh, and you really need to demonstrate that you have the ability to month in and month out, year in and year out, make the amount of money you want, you need to make. Plus, develop, you know, have several months of um, living expenses in the bank because there will be times when um, you're going to have to rely on that. Every poker pro goes through uh, astonishing downswings that uh, that most folks wouldn't believe.
0: Well, tell us, if you can, if you, if you don't mind, I mean, you've been a professional full-time since 2000. That's almost 10 years, nine and a half years. During that time, what kind of adversity, if any, have you faced uh, moments where you said, geez, maybe I should go back to, to the work I used to do, or maybe I really should focus on writing more so that I don't have to depend on playing it? What kind of adversity have you faced?
1: My biggest downswing at thirty sixty was a little over twelve thousand dollars over a period of like six or seven weeks, and when you're doing that, you really st- and I've had other downswings too. I've had some six seven thousand dollar downswings, and I remember coming home once during one of these things, and my wife was saying, "How'd you do?" And I said, "Well, you know, I just lost another two thousand. I'm stuck about seven or eight thousand for the month." And she'd say, well, maybe you should take a week off. And I said, well, I really can't right now. I'm playing too well.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's a great ironic comment.
1: Well, I mean, you have to know when you're playing well and when you're not and when you need to regroup, you know, and when you're having the best hand on the turn and putting in extra bets with it and then not winning. Because as soon as you lose your aggression, as soon as you look at your pocket kings and say, God, I've lost with these five times in a row. I'm not going to raise. I'm pretty sure an ace is going to come. You're cooked yeah, you're cooked you have you have to put in the bets and take your losses, and that's hard to do but and I have an extremely supportive wife she was a she was a poker prop for five years, and so she understands the swings that go with the game mm-hmm. I've had some buddies who tried to turn pro and I warned them they might be able to handle it, but their spouse couldn't Um, And that proved to be the case in a couple of cases where, you know, they could do it if, you know, they were single, lived alone, but to come home and, you know, because sometimes spouses really require uh, security. And not knowing if you're going to win or lose the next month is not very secure. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so that's right do you take care of all of the family expenses as a poker player i mean like health insurance and a pension and stuff like that or is that something that's been handled in some other way
1: no i take care of all the family expenses as a poker guy
0: that's true both,
1: well, i'm now 64 when i turned 62 i did start collecting social security
0: so did you pay into social security as a self-employed poker player I did. how do you do that
1: you file your tax returns with the amount of money you actually make. And part I know of, that's a shocking comment. I know you, you probably have listeners fainting all over the world. No, but, I um, do the same thing. I mean, I, <laughs> I
0: put all my income, I declare it, and I deduct my expenses, and um, I, ended, I actually started a, a SEP, a self-employed yeah, I uh, did that too. person's pension fund. Um, <laughs> but even so, I, I didn't think through. How, I mean, it's not my primary income, so I didn't worry about Social Security. You then pay into Social Security as well as if you're because so, you're self-employed.
1: As, as a self-employed person, you pay double Social Security because you pay your share and then you pay the employer's share.
0: I see. Well, that's very interesting. Now, do you you say you coach? How if somebody wanted to get Barry Tannenbaum to help coach them, what would they do?
1: Well, I certainly recommend they do that. Yes. Um, they could uh, contact me through my website, BarryTannenbaum.com. Only one n in a row. Wait, wait, it's,
0: it, spell it, because the, I, I saw on Card Player, by the way, three different spellings for Tannenbaum. One with T-A-N-N, one with T-E-N-N, and one with T-A-N-A-N. So well, ha- none of those are right. <laughs> it's T-A-N-E-N-B-A-U-M, right? Yes, it is. Okay.
1: B-A-R-R-Y for those listeners in the Midwest. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> who think everything's pronounced B-E-R-Y and spelled bery no, Right.
0: Right. <laughs> T-A-N-E-N-B-A-U-M dot com. Right. We'll put that on our website as well. Tell us about coaching and how that works, because I I know I've spoken to Bob Giafani. I've spoken to Roy West. They have different ways of doing it. I do it differently. How do you do your coaching?
1: They have very different ways of doing it, and I've talked to them as well. Um, I coach intermediate and advanced players. I don't do beginners, partly because I cost too much and partly because they could do better Elsewhere, just by reading a basic book, than having me say the table is oval and there's a button. Um, <laughs> what I try to do with my people is to uh, find. I'm, I'm into strategic thought process, which is what are you thinking when you make your plays? What are you thinking about? How do you narrow down your range of thoughts for this particular situation to the relevant issues for this situation? what are the players weaknesses everybody has some weaknesses in their game and my job as a coach by talking to them by asking them to submit hands uh... to me where they've written up how they played hands and hands that troubled them from the way they write it up and the way they talk about poker i can generally figure out some of their issues by discussing poker with them i can figure out some more and i figure out they don't bluff enough or they um they are, they're calling too many raises, or they're not taking advantage of position, or they're uh, getting confused with small pocket pairs. And what we try to do is find specific weaknesses we can work on, come up with, have them understand the logic of why those are incorrect, and also come up with some exercises they can do to, to work on those.
0: So you teach them how to think, and then you teach them about their specific problems in their own game their, and show them how to correct it and to think through a hand strategically correctly. Yes. Okay, and so do you do that generally online, on the phone, in person, or any combination of the three? I
1: do I do not do it online. Um, I do it on the phone, and I do it in person, and that's about um, probably 60-40 in person these days. It used to be more on the phone, but now it's... People seem to be coming to Las Vegas more and saying, well, now that I'm here, I'll look them up. And I have a few people, bless their hearts, who come to Vegas just to see me.
0: So if I wanted to – now, you, do you only coach people in limit, or do you also do no limit? And do you do any other games like, I mean, the antique I, game of stud or maybe even – I
1: do all the games. I play all the games. I love all the games. I mean, I don't, I don't think – I don't recommend you cut to me for Badoogie.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, that's what somebody needs these yeah, days because there's no book on it. I know. <laughs> How about Deuce to Seven Lowball?
1: I do do. To seven low ball. I do I do badugi, but the thing is, I play Badugi so tight. I may be the tightest Badugi player in the world because I don't have the strategy down. Right. And the rule is, if you don't have the strategy down, don't mess around with it. Just you know, only play really great hands, and um, you know, let we can get bluffed out of the others. Right, because that's a lot better than putting in a lot of money on the others, to, to not knowing where you're at.
0: But you do coach <laughs> no limit as well as limits. I
1: do coach no limit, and I have a number of tournament guys who come to me.
0: As more as like a mentor or just somebody to help them work on their game. Yes, I see.
1: You know, think through that. You know, they'll come and you know, we'll we'll talk about situations. We'll talk about the tables they're about to play. We'll talk about you know the overall strategy of what they're trying to accomplish in a tournament and how they can go about doing it. Uh, Do you play tournaments, Barry? Do you play? The the truth is, I do not play tournaments very often. I don't play long tournaments because I don't have the the stamina. One of the reasons you see all these 22-year-olds winning the gold bracelets is because they can cope with 13 hours followed by 13 hours followed by 13 hours. <laughs> I'm a five-hour-a-day guy.
0: Yeah, so you, when are you at the Bellagio? When would
1: nor- I, be- I normally play for four and a half to five hours sometime between nine in the evening and four in the morning.
0: And you're in the thirty-sixty game.
1: I am in the thirty-sixty game, and during the World Series, we've been lucky enough to get between four and six of them per night.
0: Wow. Now, is the Bellagio really the only place that you play because they have the only consistent 30-60 action, or do you ever find yourself at the Venetian or at the MGM or anywhere else?
1: I play exclusively at the Bellagio because they're the place that has the the high-limit games and the action that I need. It's not, you know, if you said, where would you like to play, I don't know, but... um, you got to go where the players are.
0: So you don't travel around the United States looking for games and private games in different cities. You are base. This is like your job. I don't get
1: invited to too many private games. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I see. And you don't have your own, obviously. And I'm a
1: very pleasant guy, but uh, for some reason I don't get invited to a whole lot of private games. Oh, you don't get I invited think, I, back. <laughs> yeah. I think you need to be either a lot more famous so, you know, multimillionaires are dying to play with you to say they did or a lot less famous, one or the other.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> very... Now, how did you get into writing, Barry? That's a very different gig. I know that card player doesn't pay enough for people to quit their day job of playing to go write for them, but how did you hook up with them?
1: Card player doesn't pay enough to even bother writing, but I um, did <laughs> Enjoy it. I mean, it was kind of fun for me to, to put my thoughts out there, and sometimes I'm putting my thoughts out there. I learn that I was wrong, and I you know, have, can have new thoughts. Um, I got into it. I moved here, and I started going to the Wednesday afternoon poker discussion groups.
0: Yes, Alan Shoemaker talked to us about it. I'd been there uh, once, and uh, it was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it's a, it, that 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 was that that's a fun group so i started going there because i was interested in poker those people talked about poker and the more i talked about poker the more i discovered that more or less i was a little more articulate and able to discuss my thought process better than the average guy um i had a background in writing because i did my masters in journalism and so and so people became interested in saying, "Barry, why don't you write?" And I did some seminars, and then a friend of mine uh, got me uh, a gig with uh, Poker Digest.
0: Yes, which failed
1: was... immediately because before I wrote my first column, they um, they got bought out.
0: June Fields, yes, I yes, it was
1: you... June Fields Magazine. Yeah, right. they, they hired me, and then never I never had to write for them. <laughs> so then I switched to um, uh, Poker Pages.
0: Poker Page is the online site.
1: Yeah, the online site, and I did about eight or nine columns for them. And then my friend Jim Breyer announced that he was going to quit card player. And I realized there was going to be a void because Jim (laughs) wrote some very good what-to-do-when columns. Yes. And there weren't a whole lot of people covering that area. So I wrote the card player and said, hey, if Jim's leaving, how about me? And they said, okay.
0: And they demand, if I remember when I wrote for them, they demanded exclusivity. So they did. you weren't able to take advantage, maybe it was too late anyway, of the huge boom in well-paying online sites that, uh, I mean, I was getting 350 to $700 an article for a while, and those days are long gone. Did you get to do any of that stuff?
1: Absolutely none. But yeah. to tell you the truth, I write, you know, I'm writing, every, I'm writing for every issue a card player.
0: So every other week.
1: So it's every other week, twenty twenty six a year, and I'm not sure I have that many more ideas. <laughs> so you know, if I started writing other things, it would I would I would I would start recycling.
0: I I got I got you know? to tell you, Barry, when I was when the online market was rich, when there were sites and magazines coming out every day. Believe me, if you wanted to, you can turn anything into an idea. Anything. I wrote for one session. I wrote fifteen articles about Judaism and poker. From. I did. I had the headline was Purim or Shavuos or Yom Kippur, and those were articles because I connect. You can make all sorts of metaphors. You're a smart guy. You're an experienced writer. You can make metaphors for anything. And then any hand you play has a lesson in it.
1: Absolutely. If, as so long you as, can, as you're plus, people people keep on asking me where do you get ideas. As long as I'm playing, you know, I, I play enough hands. I can write one up each week if I need to.
0: That's right. <laughs> Now, do you get into any of, there are sites now on the internet, I know you said you don't do any coaching on the internet, but there are sites that offer strategy videos um, that have hired some writers and some players to actually coach people through certain hand situations. Have you ever thought about that? Has anyone approached you about that? Uh,
1: Yes, I've thought about it. No, no one's approached me about it. Okay. Well? Um, Somewhat surprising, but I think that because I am more or less classified as a limit guy, Yeah. uh, you know, probably nine out of my ten columns are limit-related, and several of the others are making the transition from limit to no limit and so on, that I'm sort of a a stereotyped old limit guy. Uh, and most of the sites are looking for ram and jam and no limit theories, uh, so they don't come to me very often.
0: <laughs> I see. Well, I, I, I find this fascinating, Barry, because, you know, there are a lot of people that write, and there are a lot of people that, that play, but there aren't that many who are really good writers as you are. I've been reading your columns for a long time and who are also full-time, not just part-time, not semi-pros like I am or like Jan Fisher is or like a lot of other folks, but a full-time pro. What would you say for listeners who have stars in their eyes is the toughest part about maintaining a career uh, as a full-time professional poker player? For you.
1: for I, I tell you. When I was younger, I don't think I could have done it because I did not have the self-discipline. I mean, nobody's making you go, uh, and nobody's making you leave when you're tired or when you're stuck. Or people are always amazed. You know, they say, "You know, how do you play?" And I say, "Well, I go. I play, you know, four and a half, five hours. I go home." And they say, "Well, you leave when you're stuck." I go, "Yeah. You know, I lose one third of the time I have for my whole life." Right. I've never had a year without a, without a losing month, and I'm you know I'm accustomed to the fact that I'm going to lose one out of three sessions. Uh, but that requires discipline in itself, and it's it's the internal self discipline to effectively grind to go there. You know, you can play great poker for four sessions out of five, and then tilt off one session because you're mad at a guy or you took a couple of early beats. The last session I played, which was two days ago. Uh, I sat down at a table. I asked for a table change. I didn't love the table, and in the first 45 minutes, I lost a rack and a half
0: of red chips.
1: Uh, actually, yellow um, uh, five-dollar well, chips. Ten-dollar chips.
0: Ten-dollar chips. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah it was fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred bucks. I was down fifteen hundred bucks. Um, a student came in to observe me when I got my table changed, and I and I said, "Well, I've lost fifteen hundred bucks in forty-five minutes. At that rate, you might look—you might be looking at my first eight thousand-dollar loss before I leave today."
0: <laughs> and did it turn around?
1: Yeah, it did. I ended up uh, losing uh, seven dollars.
0: That's quite a comeback.
1: Well, you know, you—it was there it was a lively game. It was just a question of uh, <coughs> so you have to make a few hands once in a while.
0: We have about we have about two minutes left, and I had one question that I am dying for you to answer Barry and it's one that i'm asked a lot and I'm wondering if our answers would be similar and it's this for a typical intermediate player, uh, not a beginner and, and not just a you know a muddling player, but somebody that knows the game and is pretty good, what is one skill or what are one or two skills that you think most good but not great players? don't appreciate enough if you were to tutor them on one or two general concepts that you don't think most good but not great players get what would they be
1: uh i'll name two the okay. first one is the absolute importance of position in everything you do uh people simply don't value position enough nobody values position enough um with only 2 minutes left that's all i can say about it um but Position. position. The, second, the second thing is exploiting the weaknesses of your opponents. It's one thing to sit there and see them. It's another thing to work out a strategy to exploit them. To get into pots with bad players, even with less than perfect hands, because bad players are going to make enough mistakes to make those hands profitable for you.
0: That's that's very good. I, I couldn't agree more. Exploiting weaknesses of bad players and position. And Where would you put game selection in the uh, list of things that most good players don't get but great players do.
1: You know, it's a funny thing. I you know, game selection, you know, Mason's written that game selection is number one and game selection's is, is is quite important to many people like yet like I told you, I sat down in a game and didn't like it, I put myself up for a table change in the first two minutes. Right. What happened was I sat down, there were five hands and no flops. I said, I don't want to be here
0: <laughs> That's right, too tight. <laughs> you
1: know? I mean, I can beat that game if I have to. I I did that for several years when those were the only games in town. Mm -hmm. But the games are better now, so I'm going to go someplace where there are people playing worse.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Do you find, by the way, that limit, Hold'em, that the players have generally been getting better? I know that in no limit, people say that they have. Have you found the game at the Bellagio to be getting even a little bit tougher, or is it frankly no tougher than it was to beat two or three years
1: ago? Uh, it's tougher than it was to be two or three years ago, but it's a whole lot easier than it was ten years ago. Really? Oh so, yeah.
0: Because no limit players are shifting over, uh, or young players that don't have any experience are playing. Why would you say that is?
1: Well, because ten years ago there were there was there was no poker boom, and so the people who were playing were the people who played every day, every day, every day. There were no people new to the game. There were no people dropping by to, to play the games they saw on TV. Uh, there were no thousands and thousands of internet players who wanted to play live when they were in town. Right. Um, So the games were fairly tough. Mm. And if you wanted to be a successful pro, you had to beat fairly tough games. Then, all of a sudden, bang, things became really easy. And I I, I felt badly for a lot of the people who joined as professionals during that time, because they did not have the skill (laughs) set to beat the games when they would get tougher.
0: Right, but they thought they did.
1: Yeah, well, they were winning. Right. Whenever you're winning, you figure you must be really, really, really good. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So you don't bother thinking, well, there's a lot to learn. You think, well, I know it all because I'm winning. That's right. Uh, So as the boom has subsided a bit, if you started playing four years ago, the games are really tough. If you started playing 20 years ago, the game's pretty easy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to see how they've changed. And then if we had more time, I'd compare the action here on the East Coast with what you've seen on the West Coast and Stud and Hold'em and all of that. But we, we don't have time. You have been a wonderful guest, Barry. I want to reiterate your website and tell people, uh, just listening to you, I know that you would be a great Great teacher, and I would encourage people to go if they're interested in getting better. Uh, the site is www. t a n e n b a u m. dot com. You've also written two books, is that right? Limit Hold'em uh, Winning Shorthanded Strategy, and then the Advanced Limit Hold'em advanced. Winning Shorthanded Strategy. And no, is there,
1: advanced is, limit hold'em strategies is my primary book. It's the one about how to play full ring games and beat tough games.
0: Are you working on anything else?
1: I am not, although I thought I was going to uh, do the uh, webcast for the Limit Hold'em Championships tomorrow, but I'm not. They replaced me with some guy named Nagrani or Nagranu or something <laughs> like that.
0: Well, it's our I loss. Am going
1: to, I am going to do the Mixed Hold'em, on, which is uh, half limit, half no limit. That's on ESPN 360? Um, uh, that ESPN 360 on
0: the 26th. Terrific. Well, that, that's Barry Tannenbaum. We'll be back with the Phantom EFX Mailbag. Coming This weekend, Saturday and Sunday So get ready for the best two days of the week Saturday and Sunday The only two days of the weekend Saturday and Sunday Time for you and no one else Saturday, Sunday 48 hours Saturday, Sunday But don't delay because after Sunday It's Monday Goodbye
3: The House of Cards Hotline, available 24 hours a day. Call the hotline or send us an email at info at houseofcardsradio.com. And don't forget to visit our website at houseofcardsradio.com and follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. By leaving a message with House of Cards, you can send to having your message played on the air. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. Here's the wonderful Joan Rivers with her thoughts on poker players.
0: And your people, you give money with blood on it i met your people in Vegas
1: for 40 years. None of them have last names. None of them. They have cash of. You're a poker player. A poker player. That's, That's awesome.
0: beyond white trash. Poker players oh, are poker poker the most players. awesome people poker in the world. Poker players are trash, darling. Trash.
3: House of Cards. Proudly serving your white trash needs since 2007.
0: Welcome back, listeners. This is House of Cards. I'm Ashley Adams. And before we end, I just want to remind all our listeners that we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, about maybe guests that you'd like us to have on. Send your questions to info at House of dot com. We're very interested in them. We'll put them on the air and answer them here. So that will do it for the show. Come back next week for more House of Cards. Good night and good luck.